0: Did you know that out of the almost 1 million known species of insects only about one to three percent of them are ever considered pests? This is Daniel Hartz with Sustainability Matters Today, a podcast where I showcase sustainability experts and discover their journeys. The aim of these conversations is to share ideas from leaders in the field on the financial benefits of adopting eco-friendly methodologies. Can it really be cost-effective to go greener? Through these talks, We also discuss ways you, as an individual, can incorporate environmentally-friendly practices into your daily life. Let's jump in. I'm excited to be speaking with Luke Peterson, a regenerative farmer based near Minneapolis, Minnesota, USA. By mimicking nature, Luke believes that his farm improves the health of the soil, and naturally, healthier soil grows healthier food and healthier food means healthier communities, which in turn lead to healthier economies. On a grander scale, regenerative agriculture goes far beyond the importance of pollinators like bumblebees and butterflies flourishing on his farm. Regenerative agriculture can actually have a direct impact on the strength of a country's economy. So Luke, the purpose of this podcast is to ask sustainability experts like you about the impact of the work you're doing, and to get your advice on how regenerative agriculture is not only important for the environment, but also cost-effective for our society in the long run. So I'd like to ask about how you got started, the environmental benefits of regenerative agriculture, the financial benefits this type of farming provides to individuals and governments, and your suggestions for simple things people listening to this podcast can do today to support regenerative agriculture. How does that sound? Sounds great. Awesome. And thank you very much for joining me here. Really looking forward to talking with you about all this.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
0: Cool. Well, let's start from the very beginning. So can you tell me a bit about how you got started in farming and where you came from?
1: Yeah. So maybe not so much how, uh, maybe how and who. I think the who is really important that helped me along the way. Cool. Yeah. My, the journey has been very random, maybe in a way. Um, mm. My wife and I got married Pretty young, at the age of 19 and 18, and two weeks after uh, graduating high school, we left for Seldotna, Alaska, wow. and um, I apprenticed a chainsaw woodcarver for a summer by the name of Scott Hansen, and Scott is a very wise and he's a very generous man, but he asked very deep questions of me and cultivated in me a passion for creativity and purpose. After that summer, I got started in farming as a job to uh, pay our way through college while living in Fargo, North Dakota, uh, while my wife was studying to be a nurse. Uh, there, I worked for a man by the name of Joey Bishop, and for three years, we managed 2,800 acres of conventional soybean and wheat. On his farm, I kind of learned the mechanics of working with farm equipment and growing crops. Mm. Joey was a businessman and Taught me how to work with what we had and make the most of it. He was very patient and trusting. Um, He allowed me to operate his machinery, which was very expensive, and kind of learned by failure. And he was just the type that would shrug his shoulders and light a cigarette and kind of make a joke if I ever made a mistake. That's cool. Yeah, he was a very unique guy. And kind of a short story there when I pulled up to the farm. He'd asked if I knew anything about farming or running equipment. I flat out lied to him and said, Yes, I know how to do this, that, and everything else. And that's kind of how I got hired. And he, he was soon to call me out on, on my bluff and tell me that I really didn't know much. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, it got me the job. So, whatever. Perfect. And then uh, when we moved back to my home area uh, in Lock County uh, after my wife graduated, I took a job with the Department of Natural Resources, traveling around Minnesota working on prairie restoration. There I learned that in nature, diversity is key to the ecosystem survival. And I was fortunate to work with a progressive boss. Uh, His name was Walt Gessler. He valued people and acted with intention on how we carried out our efforts in land management. Mm. And though I didn't realize... All of this at the time, working with these different people and going to different places, all these things kind of were just pieces to the larger puzzle of uh, kind of where I'm at now and where i'm where I'm headed to. So while I was working for the DNr, I had the opportunity to begin farming, uh, which allowed me to be flexible to be home more with my new daughter. so mm. that was the reason for leaving the DNr was we had uh, Esther. And we were working on the road a little bit and living in the country. It was kind of difficult for my wife to be in the country in the wintertime and me being gone every now and again. So I took the opportunity to farm and um, I became involved with the industrial side of agriculture through conventionally farming corn and soybeans. And for a short time, I uh, was selling Monsanto seed at the local co op and I quickly began to ask, Some difficult questions, which no one really wanted to answer. And it was there that I learned the politics behind the seed, fertilizer, and the pesticide and fungicide sales. I really felt like me and my fellow farmers were simply being played as pawns for big agriculture. Uh, I realized the direct correlation between these practices and the decreasing population in my rural community, Uh, the increase in number of acres needed to be profitable and the government subsidies that fueled Big Agricultural's engine. So uh, at that time, in raising our one-year-old daughter, my wife and I were exploring the environmental effects in our waterways, the wildlife, uh, the nutritional quality of our food, and human health. And my wife was involved with healthcare, obviously. So she was constantly asking questions and had concerns. And uh, for quite a while, I'd kind of bluff it off and say, well... I had my same comebacks that that are just kind of floating around out there that are easy to come back with. But it kind of became apparent to me that it's something I should look into. So it just became impossible to ignore the effects of my actions. And we decided together that we were going to make a switch to start farming organically. And uh, we were going to do it on my great, great grandpa's farm. Wow. And very fortunate to have lived only two miles from there, so I only moved two miles away from where I grew up.
0: That's really nice.
1: Yeah, and so with the uh, eighty acres, it, it was—it's an eighty-acre farm. Um, eighty acres is not much in terms of today's agriculture, but going into organics, it kind of felt like I was growing an eighty-acre garden and i I knew how much work gardening could be, and I just had a little garden plot, so it was kind of overwhelming at first, but now I realize that there's ways of getting around all the huge obstacles. but it was kind of me against the weeds the first year it was it was i I felt really big, I felt like really good I had a you know a mission and a purpose for the first time. I really felt worthwhile. I just remember the feeling that I had going into that first year, and I just felt. So good about it and so pumped up. And uh, I began pulling dilapidated machinery from the pre-chemical era out of groves and ditch banks. Some machinery literally had trees growing up through it. Wow. I had old rotary hose, old cultivators, old drags. And then I had YouTube, which is a great tool. And I I used the older generation of local mechanics around me. And I got an effective fleet of equipment up and running. I would call Carmen Fernholz who was a veteran organic farmer who was conveniently located only about seven miles from me. And he would coach me through the ins and the outs of organic production. This is the reason for being successful in raising a crop organically, having that knowledge to my disposal. And he handed me 40 years worth of trial and error, the do's and the don'ts. Because going into this, you have a lot of ideas And I think most organic farmers going into it kind of have the same ideas. They run into the same problems, kind of in the same order sometimes. Yeah. And I would always run it past him. And it was usually a simple yes or a no, which was really, really nice at the time. I didn't have to go through all of the, you know, all the stuff that didn't work. I just simply could do what worked kind of right off the bat. He became my greatest farming mentor and is a dear friend as well. He led by example and still is a positive force who leads me to believe that at the end of the day, uh, the rest of the world really doesn't matter. And all that matters is if I show up, I will succeed. Yeah. In farming an organic system, the soil has inspired me to do more. Uh, and working on Carmen's farm, I quickly noticed the difference in his soil texture. It was very different coming off of the farm that I was working on. Mm. Uh, his was just very soft and moist. It was very porous and had a lot of structure to it. And I noticed this immediately when I started cultivating on his farm. hull. The dirt would flow through the shanks, and I didn't have any slabs rolling on top of my crop. Getting into the, the field on a timely manner was another thing I noticed. Getting into the field early enough in the spring was a challenge on my farm. But on Carmen's, even though the soil was wet and moist, it still was very workable. And his farm, this soil has been farmed this way for over 45 years. And I'm just a few years into it on my farm. But I have seen a lot of life return to my soil as well in the last five years.
0: Just to clarify, by soil, you mean uh, like earthworms?
1: Yeah, on Carmen's farm, the earthworms are out of this world. You don't need a shovel to go fishing to find earthworms. You just scrape away the top dry matter on the soil and pick up your nightcrawlers and worms because they're everywhere. Wow. And even in, well, I guess in the home place there that my mom owns, that structure in the last four to five years has come back significantly also, and the earthworms are, are starting to build there also. So seeing that and seeing that the change can happen fairly fast, I mean, even if it's small, it is, I can see a change, which is pretty significant. Um, And I'm not looking through a microscope even, like this is just what I can see with my eyes. I can see that things are definitely changing. So this has kind of led me into my next pursuit, and that's uh, to pursue regenerative farming.
0: And so what exactly is regenerative, and how is that different than organic?
1: In a way, the regenerative kind of movement is kind of going back to what organic started out as, I feel like. And it's just kind of having a few more principles that kind of have been taken out of organic maybe over the years. But I I maybe just start with the five principles of soil health are a good example of what it is to kind of name it. But one of those five is li- limiting the disturbance of the soil, which is minimum tillage. And um, we've accomplished that, I feel like, on our farm already where we have eliminated fall tillage completely.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And inorganic, well, being certified organic, I can't use any herbicides. So, I'm stuck with either using herbicide, which I can't use, or tillage to decimate, like, a perennial crop. Like, we grow alfalfa, which is a three year perennial. So, I have to use tillage every once in a while. But the idea is to minimize that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Armor on the soil, I feel like we're accomplishing this also. Cover crops, keeping the soil covered at all times. And no fall tillage also keeps the soil covered with the cash crops residue. I kind of feel like like the armor on the soil is just the skin on a, on a human in a way. Yeah. Mother Earth doesn't like to be naked. And to me, bare soil kind of looks like an open wound in a way. Mm. To me, it gets it looks worse and worse every year. And the more and more that I learn about soil, I feel how important it is to keep it covered. Something very simple, but yeah, it is a challenge when you decide that we're going to farm. I mean, that's kind of farming, you know, is the idea of taking over Mother Nature's ideas and kind of implementing our own on her. So it's a push shove type of a thing. And I feel like we just have to do the best we can so that we can stay competitive. Yeah. But yeah, we're experimenting with, well, I shouldn't say we're experimenting. We've been very successful at growing cover crops and uh, keeping the soil covered. But uh, another thing would be building diversity. So cash crop rotation. And a few things that I'm growing on my farm this year are Nostine dent corn, uh, yellow field corn, soybeans, barley, oats, golden flax. We have three different wheat varieties Redeemer, Forefront, and Emmer, possibly even Einkorn, and a small plot of peas that we put in. We have diverse cover crop mixes, which are seven to eight species in themselves. Wow. We have pollinators pollinator habitat around the border of our fields. We have native prairie on our land, restored prairie on our, on our land, we have restored wetland. So just like the, um, the amount of diversity, like all those things, like restoring prairie and taking it out of crop production, probably wasn't upfront, wasn't the most profitable thing to do. Right. But in the long run, the diversity, I mean, will be key to our success.
0: That's what you mentioned in terms of um, what you noticed on the prairies when you were doing the restoration. That diversity is really the key to the ecosystem survival.
1: Yeah. So, like, if you use that prairie for example, in a way we could say that that's our pest management because we're creating a home for all the beneficial insects to live in, and which are which is right next to our field. Yeah.
0: Those wetlands are everything you just described. Is that all on that eighty-acre farm?
1: No, no. So, like, on the eighty-acre farm, uh, that's just we kind of just started on that four years ago. So on that farm, we have a small piece of restored prairie. And um, then we have a pollinator mix that we planted around the edge. And then we planted a few rows of flowering, not fruit trees, but they're kind of like fruit-bearing trees for wildlife. And then like the restored wetlands, they're on Carmen Fernholz's farm. And his farm is one that I'm transitioning into. Okay. And he has kind of spent his entire life uh working in this direction and he he has a restored wetlands it's kind of right in the center of this uh i suppose it's about 200 acre farm and you can almost see it from all directions uh it's it's just an ideal it's it's such a nice farm it isn't a perfectly flat square but it um uh, it has a lot of diversity on it
0: that's really cool sounds beautiful
1: it is yeah um uh, another principle of soil health in a regenerative system is keeping a living root in the soil. It's always having plants in the field, not leaving the soil bare once again and black over the winter. And then, um, fifth main one is integrating livestock. I guess this is something that we are working on slowly. We haven't done this yet, but we are definitely in the process of making this happen. And that's simply because there's just no animalist ecology. But, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the five principles that we're kind of working on and trying to move the farm forward on.
0: That's a an important element of how you actually think about farming, using those five principles and making sure you're always staying true to them.
1: Yep, those are kind of my five commandments in a way.
0: Got it. And are those five principles for organic farming, or is that for regenerative farming?
1: Yeah, they are definitely for either or, but I think that organic's name is or organic in a way is kind of being pushed off in a different direction because it's, it may become industrialized at one point. It maybe already is. Right. Um, so I think regenerative is kind of saying, you know, this is where organic started. We're taking back these principles and we're going to actually implement them on the land on each farm in order to be called regenerative. And that's, it, it does get really sloppy, you know, and a, a lot of this, I mean, the best way to, kind of place it as by just knowing your farmer in a way.
0: Right. Makes sense. So asking um, questions at farmer's markets about how they actually do, how they grow things and what their processes are. Yeah. Yep. What you've described so far, and I'm not a farmer myself, so I don't know the, the specifics, but it sounds very different than conventional farming, where I'm guessing you're using a lot more herbicides, as you mentioned, is something that you don't use on a certified organic farm. It sounds like fall tillage is something that's common practice on a conventional farm. So is removing all of those things um, that you'd see on a conventional farm, is it challenging to make that transition to stop using all of that?
1: Um, Yeah, it is at first. And um, it I, I can't say it's difficult. It's really not. It's really not difficult. I feel like at first it seems like it it will be, but it actually, every step that you move you know, in the right direction towards how nature works on its own. things do get easier. it's just everything has to do with how you think about it and your attitude towards it. Mm. so like um, you know instead of a herbicide, you just have to kind of change your approach a little bit and I guess um, you know an example when you when when I eliminate a herbicide. I just had to swap that out for a cultivator and a tine weeder and a rotary hoe. Right. And then there's also the benefit of not spending money on, on some of these things. Mm. All these come from uptown from a salesman. You know, and once I buy my cultivator and my tine weeder and my rotary hoe, they're kind of one-time expenses and they have minimum maintenance on them. Right. If they're taken care of they could last 20 to 25 years or longer. And the herbicide will only last one application, one time. And when it's applied, your money's gone and you have nothing to show for it.
0: What you're saying is let nature do all the hard work and um, it'll sort of take care of itself as long as you allow it to.
1: Yeah. And, and like what you just said there, as long as you allow it to with the uh, not spending money or not buying insecticides, whether that's hard or not. Uh, it's not hard because the insecticides kind of just create these superbugs and we kill all of the um, beneficial insects that normally would kill our pests. So once again, we're kind of just stepping back and allowing things to kind of manage themselves in a way. In, I mean, not manage themselves, but in a way, kind of.
0: Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. It's kind of like, um, yeah. I mean, if you're killing the beneficial bugs that would eat those pests, then you have to kill the pests because there's nothing there to otherwise eat them and, and get rid of them naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: I'm pretty sure that there's one, well, I'm not sure on the numbers here, but out of nearly 1 million known insects, only about 3% are considered pests. So wow. That's pretty significant numbers if you think about it. Yeah. And I, and I have a hard time believing that all these insects are here to destroy our food system and just to torment us, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so ha- have you found um, by taking these certified organic or I guess we can just call it organic and regenerative agricultural practices that you're actually increasing your yields as well?
1: I don't think we're increasing our yields at all. Mm-hmm. Right now, it, it's a, if as a farmer, that is the one thing that gets pounded into your head is yield, yield and yield. And there's consequences for that yield. It's not you know that you're a better it could be that you're a better farmer, I guess, in a way, but it's not that you got all this yield. Well, it had to come from somewhere. I mean, if you watch those semis after semi after semi, Holloway loads of corn off your field every single year you got to think about how many loads of semis worth of minerals does that field have in it and how many years can we do that? Mm. So don't really, we don't, it's not that we don't focus on yield and we have a responsibility to grow food. Of course, since we have access to this nutrient dense black soil and some people don't, but what we are focusing on this farm is the nutritional value of the food that comes off the farm and the taste of it um so with yield not only are you in a sense not i mean i'm not talking about anything specific here but you can deplete the soil by taking too much yield too often it's it's a difficult question but i would say no the, the answer is no we haven't seen an increase in yield but we have different goals other than yield
0: yeah i see what you mean just out of curiosity have you seen a decrease
1: well in a sense i suppose if it's hard because you'd have to look at one specific crop Like um, you could say, well, we're going to look at corn this year and then say, yeah, maybe it was five or 10 bushels less than the conventional neighbor or whatever. But then if you look at, if you look at our small grain yields, they, I mean, they could be better in a sense. And I guess kind of back to where we started by not using synthetic fertilizer, that's, I don't know how many millions of years worth of, of fossil fuels that's being turned into synthetic fertilizer. So kind of the difference is our fertility source and our rotation and all that. Over time, I think our yields will pick up. That's a difficult question, but yeah, short answer is no.
0: It sounds like what you're saying is that although the numbers may be a little lower, the quality of the food is significantly higher. Yes. So you're getting more bang for your buck, nutritionally speaking.
1: Yeah, I think I've read this article. It's called No Free Lunch and food scientists have compared the nutritional levels of modern crops with historic and generally lower yielding ones. And today's food produces ten to twenty five percent less iron, things like protein, calcium, vitamin C. There were researchers from Washington State who analyzed sixty-three spring wheat varieties grown between eighteen ninety two and two thousand thirteen and they found an eleven percent decline in iron and 16% decline in copper, and 25% decline in zinc. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there's definitely a quality issue. That's a direct result of soil losing its nutrient-holding ability, you know, from mining it for yield.
0: That's what you were mentioning earlier about all the semis just taking all that away, and there's no real way to replenish. Yeah. Yeah, so switching gears a bit, because um, one of those five principles of soil health is to use livestock to fertilize.
1: Yeah. Um, that is kind of the hope and the dream right now for the, right now we're buying our fertility offsite. And, um, if we could have our own livestock within the rotation, that would, you know, one thing it would do is it would allow me to sell less forage off the farm. And, um, this is kind of crucial to an organic or regenerative system. Uh, also adding livestock, it would allow us to graze those cover crops, um, that we talked about earlier. Right. Right now, those cover crops are kind of an expense. And if we can graze them, that would possibly make them profitable. And there's things like having the saliva and the hoof action. And you know, it's been proven that that's very beneficial to the land and the manure and the urine will all be on site. And it'll cut back on the transportation and the application costs. So
0: When you mentioned that your cover crops, by having livestock, can become profitable, what exactly does that mean?
1: Um. So we use we use cover crops for different reasons. Uh, one example right now is if we have like a compaction issue in our soil, we 'll plant a tillage radish in using its tap root to penetrate the hard pan of the soil instead of hooking up a you know three four hundred horsepower tractor right dragging steel shanks vertically through the soil each fall so that 's what we 're using them for now and they 're accomplishing you know our goal that way, but on top of the soil. They have all their leaves in the, on the greens and everything. Um, if we could, and that's what we're going to be working on this fall, is fencing in our, our fields so we can turn livestock out onto the cover crops that are right now working for us below ground, but to turn livestock out there to use up the forage that's above ground. And um, using that forage by run, running it through a herbivore um, we will take that forage and turn it directly into manure and then leave it on site. So we're accomplishing the, the tillage with the tillage radish. And that's just one example. But we're also, now we're able to sell the beef off the farm by grazing the cover crops.
0: So now the cover crops not only do tillage, but they make beef.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Very cool. It's like, um I was watching a talk by Gabe Brown, and he mentioned that you use the waste from one production process to fuel the profit of another.
1: Yeah, it, um it does it's this is going to be kind of a sidetrack but when you're just talking it makes me think about just the amount of possibilities that could be happening on the land uh, and if you think about what was here before that's where i always go back to was what was here before and what's here now so kind of starting when i start transitioning a a farm to organic and then into regenerative eventually um, it starts out as a clean black slate of more than likely very sterile soil, um, where even in the soil, there's very little life. And if you think about what was here before we decided to do this thing called farming, right? that just, in one way, it can really make you kind of depressed and upset in a way. But then on the other hand, I'm starting to look at it as, well, look at all the possibilities that we have now. Cause this, we get to start fresh and we need to move on. And uh, if you think about, well, there were the herds of buffalo and antelope and elk and moose and the insect diversity had to be insane. Um, The soil microbes had to be insane. The birds, um, like all that diversity was working together very closely and very intricately. So just like adding the cover crops is one small piece and then adding the livestock herd is going to be the is going to be the next piece. Um, we're kind of starting from the ground and then working our way up, but everything else we're following behind that. But yeah, super interesting.
0: Yeah, there, I'm noticing that there is definitely a lot of interest in this kind of mimicking nature to restore you know, basically the health of the soil, both on farmlands and just kind of in nature in general especially using livestock because that's a big part of as you said what what was there before uh, you'd have buffalo and moose and all sorts of big animals with hooves running back and forth basically fertilizing and plowing up the land a bit mhm makes a lot of sense logically just to go back to that and if you're able to not only bring the soil health back to the farm and therefore make healthier food but also they work together on your farm from a business point of view in order to make it even more profitable it just makes so much sense
1: financially it does make a lot of sense we're gaining the benefits that are here that are already here if we would just allow them to happen instead of going to town to buy everything that we need
0: yeah Speaking of financially making sense, I read a Reuters article from February 2019 where the U.S. Agriculture Secretary, Sonny Perdue, said that U.S. farm debt has soared to levels that haven't been seen since the 1980s farm crisis. Do you have any ideas why that could be happening?
1: Yeah. Well, like I just mentioned, if we have a pest problem, we go buy a pesticide. If we have a weed problem, we go buy herbicide. If we have a fungicide problem, we go buy fungicide. Um... <laughs> spend spend you know like when when will the spending end yeah and then so just basically every decision that is being made on inputs comes from someone else that sets the price on them like the seed chemical fertilizer mm-hmm. and um another huge part of it it's hard to tell which one comes first what we just talked about or the marketing side of things but you know, when we sell, when we market our crops, when we market these things that we sell off of these farms, we can use corn as an example. And let's say we're going to sell to Cargill, and this is just my opinion, um, but this is just how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Cargill is just a huge corporation, right? And as farmers, we don't go to Cargill as a group and market collectively and say we have a product. That you want and that you need. And remember, without our product, Cargill doesn't have a business. Right. And as a group, you know, we don't go to them and say, all right, we have this product and we have decided what we need as far as how much money we need for this product that is going to make us profitable and allow us to keep farming sustainably or organically or regeneratively. We all go in kind of as Mavericks in a way, either thinking that maybe we'll outsmart Cargill or maybe what we're thinking is that by going to Cargill and getting that $3 corn or, you know, under the cost of production for our product, that maybe we'll undercut the neighbor. You know, that way, if I can grow corn or whatever at this price and my neighbor can't, then essentially he'll go out of business and I'll take over where he left off. I mean, that's kind of the race to the bottom mentality that we have in a way right now. Mm. And I, I don't believe that it's Cargill's fault that, we're, you know, that they're making huge profits year after year. And farmers are struggling. They are grain buyers and they are really good at their job. Their, their job is to buy grain as cheap as possible. You know, so I mean, that's their job. They're really good at it. We as farmers are grain sellers. So I guess the question is, is how are we doing at our job? We really do need to stop and think about what we are doing and why we are doing it. You know, the community needs, the fu- it, it, it kind of, in a way you can kind of get looked at as kind of greedy in a way to say, you know, I need so much for my product. You know, I'm asking for, for more money for my product when food is already supposedly really expensive. But you have to look at the externalities that go along with cheap food. And then is it really cheap? You know, right now I'm working with a bakery in Northeast Minneapolis, and they make a loaf of bread. They're seeded bread. It's wonderful, and they sell it for five fifty a loaf. I think that's maybe a buck fifty over what you can buy a country heart for. Mm. And the difference that that buck fifty a loaf, if the consumer is willing to pay for that, of course, as part of this. Is uh, it makes a huge difference on the landscape, but when they buy grain from me, they pay me fairly for it. So that allows me to farm, you know, the way and in, in move in the direction that I'm moving now, which is, is in the opposite direction of selling $3 corn to Cargill, you know, at a, at a loss.
0: Right. So by selling to this bakery, you, you don't sell at a loss.
1: Well, that's a complicated question too, because like right now getting started, it's a very slow process. Um. They're In a sense, we're kind of creating a new economy. I, I like to think of it that way. That's cool. And um, I, I guess the short answer is no. I, I'm not selling it to them at a loss. But we're kind of just working together. And I'm trying to sell it to them at a price also where they can still make money. Right. Because the consumer, and, and right now it's small quantities. So if you add up you know, the amount of work that goes into it, and the additional infrastructure that's needed to market this way and the time and everything else that's involved. It's kind of just at the beginning stages, but I don't want to say that I'm marketing it at a loss, but at the same time, I'm being fair on my price so we can move forward with this idea.
0: It sounds like conventional farmers and farmers who are selling to companies like Cargill, a big part of the reason that they are in debt, and it's higher now than it has been for almost 40 years uh, is because of this race to the bottom. And it's because of that um, kind of debt hamster wheel from buying insane amounts of inputs that you don't need to buy from, from buying the latest, shiniest machinery that is required. Whereas you're going and finding tractors that have trees growing out of them. And and it almost sounds like the way that farming is currently being done is almost designed to make farmers go into debt. Whereas by... What, what you said is, you know, you just go and do what you want to do and you do it the way you think is right, is actually allowing you to set your own prices, which are fair to you and to the people that you sell to. Uh, and it's also good for the environment and for, for your health.
1: Yeah. And it, in a way, it does kind of raise the question, is it designed to keep farmers in debt? It's very interesting, especially as a farmer, you know, that has seen like how the credit side of it works, how the subsidy side of it works, how the you know the politics that we talked about earlier with the seed chemical and fertilizer, Mm -hmm. how that all kind of plays together in this very competitive world, very competitive mindset. And you wonder if it's set up that way, which sometimes I honestly do wonder. But then at other times you have to look at the other side of it. And, you know, like I'm not blaming Cargill, but also just the farmers in the now, in farmers in general this, I'm, I'm speaking very loosely i'm not talking about anybody specific but if a piece of land comes up for rent or for sale it's every man for himself um, the farming community i would say in the big picture right now obviously as anybody can see isn't working together for the greater good of you know the community if they were I don't think my hometown would be deciding on what school, I should say my home county, is deciding on which school they're going to shut down next. Wow. Or which hospital is going to be low on funding, or which county road is going to be graded, or added gravel, or which bridge is going to get fixed.
0: So that local economy, which is the bakery that you're working with, and that's the one that's in the in the food building you were telling me about before the call?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so on the flip side of this new economy, as I like to call it. Right. What it is is it's it's just a group of very passionate, selfless, uh, deep thinking people who can kinda see the underlying causes of our faltering economy and they've decided to do something about it. They understand that with food we can have a healthy community, a healthy economy, and a healthy ecosystem. Right? We can have all those things. But it does start with food. Like I said, they pay us fairly for our crops. And another thing that's really important and very unique with what they're doing, which to answer your question earlier about being profitable or not, I should say maybe not immediately, but in the long haul, this type of marketing or buying and selling is crucial because they buy alternative crops from me. And earlier we talked about the diversity uh, is going to be key to the ecosystem's survival. Yep. That means my survival financially as a farmer, because I depend on that ecosystem for my finances. Mm. This Them looking at alternative crops, that allows me to have that diverse rotation that we talked about. That allows me to get creative, because if I grow one or two crops year after year, financially and sustainably, or whatever you want to call it, that's it's going to be very difficult to to move in an organic regenerative system. So them buying something like flax, they buy. I, I was able to grow flax. So that added a whole nother crop to my rotation. I would have not ever planted flax if I didn't have a market for it. So having a market for these alternative crops is huge.
0: That's a really good point. It doesn't make sense to, from a financial standpoint, free to grow any crops that you can't sell. It's very much of a a balance where um, you need to be able to sell it somewhere in order for you to actually have a reason to, to grow it. Um, So there has to be a demand for it.
1: Yeah, correct. That's for sure. And that demand. Yeah. So when a customer walks in to their food co-op or their grocery store, it's their responsibility to hold whatever it is they're buying in their hands and ask the question, Is this the world I want to live in? Where did that food come from?
0: Yeah, that's um kind of a lot of pressure when you think about it. If you're just going into the store,
1: and this is great because I think about this all the time. Like as a farmer, what what a lot of pressure to get from from the public. Where farmers need to do this, 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 and this. It's you know like as a farmer on the on the other side of it, we're looking back and saying, well, how can you expect me to do that? When you're not supporting me, you know, when you're in your buying decisions. So, so it, it's a, it goes both ways. When the when the public says, "Hey, we want this to happen in our environment," or "Hey, we we're sick of sick of dirty water and eroding land and climate change," and then they swing into McDonald's on their way home, <laughs> that is very very frustrating as a farmer.
0: Yeah, very counterproductive supporting the exact opposite of what they were just saying.
1: Yeah. And wherever the market is is where the farmers will move. If there's a market, I do have faith that most farmers will move in that direction. And that that market I think is coming, it's just coming very slowly. Um education is a, you know, a huge part of this and then like if you look at what we're doing with the bakery, the demand is there at the same time we kind of have to build all the infrastructure to get them what they want. So right now we're we're building things on the farm, the the bakery. The bakery's name is Bakersfield, by the way. They have to build the infrastructure to have, have the warehouse, have the bakery, um, have to figure out how to store this grain, they have to figure out how to clean it. They have a mill. They mill on site, so they have to mill it. They have to package it. They have to get it to all the stores. Um, in the surrounding area. And so we have to do, oh, and they have, another the thing is they have to figure out how to use it. So like the grain consistency changes from year to year, just depending on the weather. And General Mills or, or whatever, they'll, they'll get grain from all over the country in mass quantities. And they can make this perfect blend to make your perfect bag of all-purpose flour. And it's always the same, uh, week in, week out, year in and year out. But when Steve Horton gets my flour or my wheat in, this is where it kind of becomes a craft. He has to, he mills it and then he kind of has to experiment with it. And then with his expertise of baking, he decides what's it's going to be best used for and uh, what other grains he might need to blend with it to kind of get his final product that is going to be desirable to the customers. So, so we're trying to build all that, all the while trying to meet demand. So everybody, even the consumers, farmers, and like the bakery, we're all on the same level. We're all moving in the right direction. It's just, real slowly, we just have our obstacles to overcome.
0: Yeah, it sounds like once you figure out what infrastructure you need and and you start building it, once it's there, that's when it becomes easier. But as always, it's the hardest part is just getting started. So now that you're becoming aware of the challenges of growing food this way um, or growing, growing grain this way specifically, and Bakersfield is starting to understand, well, here's what we need to be ready for every year. I'm guessing it becomes easier and easier and faster and faster because you learn as you make the mistakes and go through it every year.
1: Yeah, yep, yep. I think we've been working together for four years now and they are buying significantly more grain now than when they started. So definitely working and they are successful.
0: Yeah, really glad to hear that it's that it's working and the partnership is is blossoming. Hopefully it can be a model for other farmers and other bakeries around around the country really and around the world. Switching gears, we were discussing earlier that regenerative agriculture is far more than just that feel-good factor of seeing bumblebees and butterflies floating around. Those bees and butterflies are actually indicative of the health of the land uh, and therefore the health of the food that you're growing, as we've talked about. So the way I've seen it, healthy food means healthy people. Healthy people means productive communities. Productive communities mean productive economies and countries. So if we zoom out and look at the bigger picture, how would you look at the food you're growing growing is actually saving taxpayers money to a certain degree because by growing healthy food you're keeping people healthy and people are healthier they're able to work more um, they're not sick so you know people don't need to pay for for health care how would you look at that yeah uh
1: simply could be put as pay the farmer now or pay the doctor later
0: (laughs) fair enough i like that
1: (laughs) it's much more fun visiting with your local farmer and talking about food and farming and Chickens and cabbages and, you know, like looking at purple carrots, we buy all of our carrots from a small vegetable yeah. farmer by Hollywood, Minnesota. They're called Toad Hill Farms. And we can go over there and we can just kind of look at the carrots and the cabbages and they tell us how they're farming. They raise our chickens for us and there's chickens running all over and there's turkeys standing at your feet, clucking or whatever they do yeah. at yeah, And it's kind of, uh it's very sensational. Like there's a lot of things going on. So being there... Is much more fun than sitting in a doctor's office. Once again, looking for somebody to fix something that could be prevented.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to um, invest upfront for higher quality in order to prevent needing to um, to fix things on the other side. Do you encounter folks who say that it's you know it's all well and good to encourage people to eat organic food, but you know that dollar fifty extra of that loaf that Bakersfield makes, it's just too much. So, what do you typically say to that?
1: To me, I just simply go right to the externalities of where the food came from. And then once you go there, you can start adding on the true cost of your food. Um, It's so easy to stand in the bread aisle and look at the two loaves and say, well, I'll get the cheaper one because it's cheaper. Well, it's cheaper immediately, but long term, it's going to be very expensive. But yeah, run into that all the time. And um, sometimes it just isn't worth the, the battle. What me and my wife do is just try to lead by example in a way. And the best thing that we're doing is we're trying to grow as much food as we can for ourselves as possible. And then we're getting really close to sourcing all of our food from local regenerative farmers or organic farmers. And we're buying that food from people. So, us spending the money locally in the long term, even that side of it, is going to make us uh, more profitable in the future because there'll be more money in the area. I mean, they'll buy something back from us on their own.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. I would imagine if I were one of the only people in my local area doing organic and regenerative agriculture and everyone else around me is doing it conventionally it could get a little bit lonely almost. You know, there's no one really to boost you up and say, "Hey, you're doing you're doing it right," and because everywhere you look, people are doing it differently and they kind of disagree with the way you're doing it. So, creating that community where you're trading and buying and selling to people who are growing in the same way you are. That must be really encouraging and uh, refreshing, I would imagine.
1: It is. And it took a little while to find those people, but it didn't take very long. It was uh, incredible to see who you'd stumble upon next or who someone would recommend that you go visit with. And pretty soon you create this small, you know, the camaraderie is awesome. Yeah. Uh, The small people that get together and you don't have to talk about anything or argue about anything. Everybody there is just on the same page, and it, I mean it makes for a fun place to be. It's just that you definitely need to find your tribe. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, that must be so nice. It's like your your little safe zone where you can go and and just be yourself, really.
1: Mhm. Yep. And you're not always on guard, you know.
0: Yeah. Do you think anyone can really use the techniques that you use uh, on your farm on a daily basis?
1: Like as far as like a large commercial farm, like Gabe Brown's is a good example of how it can be done. But then there's also that reason why large farms and commercial farms are large and commercial, you know, and it isn't because they're paying attention to the detail. When I worked in Mapleton, North Dakota, there was a farmer that had 48,000 acres. Wow. (laughs) So it's pretty hard to pay attention to the details. Yeah. And it's amazing the details that are out there. When you go walk in the field and you stand in the field, you might have to stand there for a while before you realize something. And you can't do that on large amounts of acres i think i could step up and say that it's not possible but like with the brown's operation he's doing it and it, he's one of the most successful farmers that there are and um the farmer that i is my mentor here carmen fernhals um, he's done it successfully for 45 years and it isn't on a large scale but it definitely is large enough and like vegetable farmers uh I think Davis and Tobin do this very well at their farm. They use all these practices and they're successful. And as far as like a home gardener, when I'm gardening at home, to me, you know, seeing all sides of this issue when I am in my garden, you know, the birds are sitting on the fence next to you and you have this little plot that's going to supply most of your food for the year. Yeah. It really kind of takes you back a little bit and you think, boy, what could it be like You know, I'm just surrounded by fields that go on forever of black dirt with nobody on them, no animals on them. And I sit in my little garden plot and there's all this commotion. And, you know, it doesn't take that much space to produce food for a family. There's all these other factors that play into that, why this isn't happening. But, um, yeah, small home gardeners is, I mean, it's a perfect place to to use these practices probably the place where you really really can pay attention to the details and kind of take on the vastness of how vast nature really is how big it really is
0: that's interesting how big it really is on on a small scale you can see the vastness even in a small garden
1: very well said yes
0: yeah that's cool You mentioned this earlier, but aside from going to the supermarket and being very careful with what you choose on a day-to-day basis as a consumer, is there anything else or, or is that really the thing that people listening to this podcast can do to support regenerative and organic farming?
1: I think right now with where we're at, the easiest thing that people can do is to go find that local farmer. And just choose that over something else and going to to look for that local farmer, kind of make it a mission in a way. Once you meet these people and you get more educated, you'll realize the impact that you really have and how much they love you coming to their farm and buying what it is that they want to do. And that's grow food. I would say buying from a person is right now the easiest thing that we can do. And it's so easy to do
0: and and more fun. Absolutely. yeah. I mean, here in London, uh, there's farmer's markets everywhere. You know, the farmers come out here and they're, they're happy to talk to you and you can ask them a thousand questions and each question they answer patiently. And, you know, you you can just see that they're really excited to talk to you and happy that there's someone who actually cares uh, and who wants to learn about how they did it. You know, where exactly did the cheese come from? What kind of grass is the cow eating?
1: Yeah. And it's, and that
0: excitement,
1: uh, it comes from, you know not your specific question but that you would ask that question and in their mind they have a million things going on and there's a reason why they're so excited about something like cheese yeah you know they're so excited why why they're selling you this this little bag of you know of wheat that you can mill at home it's not that they really love the wheat or that they really love the cheese <laughs> it's right. it's the world that that they're creating by by selling you that cheese so, yeah, so that, that part to me is, I mean, I love that part. I love talking to other farmers about how they grow their food, you know, that I buy from them, or I love telling people about how we do it on our farm.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. Do you also sell at a farmer's market, or you have more of these partnerships?
1: With grain, it gets kind of difficult, because there isn't much with, like, home baking right now, or home milling. So, the with the bakery, that's very local, as far as grain goes, and... um I do sell flax online to individuals, you know, on 5, 10 and 25 pound packages. I just, just kind of do it over email or Instagram or, or whatever and use PayPal that way.
0: Got it. I think it's great to be able to use technology and um, the internet to actually sell people things that are grown with love and in a way that works well with nature.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the Technology technology, it's all there waiting for us to use it,
0: right? Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and so do you have any um any books or even just one book that you could recommend for people who want to learn more about uh regenerative agriculture or organic or getting started in farming at all?
1: yeah, and besides a book, I just would walk out and just walk out in nature where you can't see anybody or anything that anybody anybody's kind of disturbed and stand there like an hour and that would be the probably the best thing you could do to understand regenerative agriculture, but as far as a book goes. Gabe Brown has dirt to soil and um, Mark Shepard has regenerative or restoration agriculture. Sorry. And um, that uh, they're they're two different farmers. Um, They have the same goals, but two very different farmers. And it just gives you a good perspective on what could be happening.
0: Cool. Well, I'm definitely a big fan of Gabe Brown. I haven't heard of Mark Shepard, so that's one to add to the list. If someone wanted to buy some of your flax or if they were interested in, in reaching yeah. out and, and chatting with you to learn more about what you do, where can people find you?
1: A place to reach out and to find would be on Instagram, an A-frame farm. And that's lowercase with no spaces.
0: Excellent. And do you have um, a website or anything?
1: Not currently, no. i just kind of been using social media like Instagram.
0: Cool. Very modern.
1: Yeah, it's, it's uh, in real time. You know, (laughs) showing true transparency is kind of the idea behind it, kind of creating my own label instead of just, you know, associating myself with organic or regenerative or whatever. I can just have those principles and be certified in those things. But I'm really using Instagram as a way to create my own label and to say this is who I am and this is what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I've been watching some of the videos that you've been posting on Instagram, just showing how you're doing day-to-day life of being Luke on your farm. It's really cool just to see what you've been up to and how it all works, because I think it's impossible for someone like me who's living in a city to actually know what goes on. Uh, So those kind of videos really bring it all to life and and make it very real.
1: Yeah. yeah, Yep. Just trying to bridge that gap between the city and the rural areas and trying to bring everything full circle.
0: Excellent. I love it. Well, cool, Luke. This has been great. I've learned a lot. It's very interesting to talk with you. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope the bakery keeps growing and and you're able to provide as much grain to them as you possibly can.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to Episode 5 of Sustainability Matters Today. You can find links to the books and the organizations Luke mentioned in the show notes, which you can see on my website, sustainabilitymatters.today. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other SMT episodes, I'd really appreciate if you could take the time to give a five-star review. To be the first to know about new episodes, please subscribe to the podcast. Talk to you soon.